Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 71 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Busy, busy, busy boy around this place lately. <clears throat> uh, last episode was called Handyman. I uh, recounted all the work I've been doing around my place, and uh, I've, I've, yeah, I've still been working hard. Um, I think in total now I've probably done about five or six tasks around this place. Um, replace a lock on my front door, replace a toilet seat, replace the fill valve. In the toilet, I replaced the whole faucet fixture on my bathroom sink. And uh, just the other day, I replaced the P-trap under the bathroom sink. So, uh, you know, if you've ever done those tasks yourself, you realize they're not uh, they're not necessarily Herculean handyman tasks. But for someone like myself who doesn't normally do that stuff, uh, it's just made me feel pretty capable. Um, <laughs> a couple things. I mean, I still have this one looming task, which is, for some reason in my place recently, the bathroom... Uh, the exhaust fan is just not working. Uh, when I take a shower, uh, the, the the moisture just hangs on the walls. Uh, the toilet, as the weather gets colder, the actual toilet tank and the and the seat itself, where the water just sort of sits, um, perspires, and water is starting because it, it just sort of sweats. The toilet sweats. Um, I wish I was smart enough to know why the weather cooling outside does that. Maybe it's actually just. Uh, the hot water when I take a shower. I, I don't know what it is, but the point is is that my toilet perspires and water just sort of pools on the ground, and at least once a day I just have to wipe off the, the entire toilet with a paper towel and sort of mop up any water that's sort of fallen on the floor. Uh, I guess I'm just worried it'll... <sighs> I don't know, ruin the... Uh, I don't know, ruin the walls or something. I don't know, standing water is not a good thing for your place, right? So uh, I think i got to fix the exhaust fan. So... That's something that your boy has to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I've, I've felt pretty capable kind of fixing the place up. Uh, I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to stay in the place that I've been at for the last, you know, 10 or 12 years. So it's sort of weird to be fixing things knowing I'm going to leave. I guess on the one hand, that's good for my security deposit. But it's almost like, you know, a couple of years ago, I did a crazy cleaning job on this place. I basically, I was scrubbing walls. I was getting the place so clean. And I remember when I was finished, the place was absolutely immaculate. And uh, there's something about knowing that your place is pristine that's really rejuvenating. Um, I remember sometimes around that time, I would like go out and do something like an errand. And I would almost look forward to coming <laughs> coming back to my immaculate place, knowing that there was no dust behind even the bookcases right? I mean, there's so many pockets in my place now, I just know that dust accumulates. There's something about living in the Bay Area where there's just dust everywhere. And I don't know what it is, because I think when I actually look it up, I read that dust is like, one, it's dirt, but I, sometimes I hear anecdotally people say that it's like skin cells or something like that. It's your dead skin sort of floating around. I don't think that's, I don't think that's true, but um, there's just something about ever since I moved to the Bay Area, dust is ubiquitous. And I should be dusting constantly. I never do. But even within a matter of a couple months, I'll look behind the books on my shelf and they're just, you know, there's a huge accumulation of dust. So, um, yeah, there was something about living at a time where I knew this place was pristine and immaculate, where 
I don't know. I enjoyed being here. Uh, it's a little dirtier than, than I'd like it now. Probably more cluttered than anything else. But uh, after fixing everything, there's a part of me that kind of, I don't know. It almost feels like you're moving into a new place. You kind of like being home. Um, my brother and his wife bought a home recently, and they've been uh, doing a lot of work around the place. They finished a big job on their kitchen cabinets recently. And uh, I don't know. In some ways, I'm reminded of that scene in Fight Club uh, where the nameless protagonist is talking about, in some ways, the, the tragedy of being a slave to your possessions, right? Tyler Durden reflects like the things that we own end up owning us. But he sort of takes inventory of his place and he talks about, oh, I have this rug from Ikea and I have, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, the plate set with the uh, tiny imperfections, proof that they're handmade by the indigenous people of wherever. Uh, but there's something about almost like if you get your place or your possessions to a certain, um, you know, if you own enough good things, your home is going to feel comfortable. It's going to feel like what it's supposed to be. And there are lingering things that you live with that almost, at least for me anyway, I evaluate them as an extension of myself. Like the fact that my, like the fact that my exhaust fan doesn't work, I look at it as like a st an extension of my own failings. You know, I feel kind of embarrassed about it, is what I'm trying to say. Like on other episodes, I've talked about this time there was this, and actually I'm glad this is coming up too. I talked about how there were, I had this looming issue with my truck. It was making a weird noise in the in the rear left tire. Turns out the bolts for the tire, if that's even the right word for it, um, were loose, and so it was sort of rattling. Um, not you know, it was not secure to the to the wheel well, if that's even the right word as well. Clearly, I'm a car expert, but um, you know, it just felt it felt like a bad thing. I felt like I hadn't uh, taken care of my truck. I felt like I wasn't responsible with it. And the fact that it falls apart, I don't know. I just felt kind of embarrassed about it, especially since it was something that other people could hear. You know, I feel the same way sometimes when somebody pulls up to a red light and their brakes just squeal and you can hear them like a half mile away. Um, you know, there's, there's some judging going on. Uh, not that it's a good thing, but there is some judging going on. And there's something about taking care of these little things around the house that... I'm not always thinking about consciously, but now that they're fixed, it's almost like I take a point of pride in it, you know? These are things that I, I normally would never do, but the fact that I, I'm able to do them just makes me feel capable. And I realize, again, they're not Herculean things to do. I, I really think anybody could do them. Um, I mean, they came up casually when I was talking to my therapist, and she was like, wow, I'm really impressed that you can do those things. And I was like, well, you can do them too. I mean, YouTube is really the, uh, YouTube is the reason that most of us can do these things these days. It also, it also makes you think, I mean, people have to make a living. I don't want to um, deny anyone, you know, they need to make a living wage. But when you think about the work that you pay handymen to do, it's really exorbitant. You know, the pieces themselves are a lot of times, I think the most expensive thing I bought was like 35 bucks. You know, most of what you're paying is labor and time. And that those are valuable things. I mean, people should be compensated for them. But if really the only thing standing between you and the task is a sometimes a five-minute YouTube video and the time you yourself invest in doing it, um, why not do it? You know, you learn some things, and uh, you feel more capable for doing it. The reason this is issue is interesting for me, and I, I'm glad I brought up the issue of the truck too, is because I'm not always, I'm not really a snap-to-action type of person. 
uh, I tend to sit on things. I, I, I've talked about it at other times, but there's something about certain tasks that I feel um, ill-suited toward, or I don't feel like they're in my wheelhouse, or I don't think they play to my my strengths, or I just don't know how to do them at the on the uh, on the outset. There's sort of a guilt component there. And the truth is, we all go through our lives not knowing things until we know them. It's the experience itself that we learn how to do things, you know. None of us have bought a car until we do. So we have to learn the process and learn about it through our first experience with it. Or buying a house. Or really anything. Opening a checking account. Uh, I mean, the, 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 most, the closest thing I've done to that recently is I finally got a library card. Uh, here in the Bay Area, not because I plan on using the library, although my brother is very evangelical that I started doing that since, I mean, I think, I think most of my expendable income <laughs> probably goes to books. And uh, I could save myself a lot of money if I just either use digital, like Kindle, e-reader versions of books, um, or got a library card. Certainly, uh, you know, in a tiny place, I would say most of my real estate is probably taken up by buy books also. And now I just have stacks of them. I, I just, anyway, I have to do a big purging of my possessions here, but, um, I got a library card to, to get a tool for one of these jobs. Uh, I just had to get a hacksaw to cut a, a piece of piping, but, uh, where are we going with all this? I sit on things. I don't really jump to it when, you know, I feel inadequate to do something. That's why I'm glad I felt motivated to do these things. And, and a lot of times in these instances, it's just about momentum, you know, fixing a lock or replacing a lock on your front door is pretty low-hanging fruit for most people. But if you get to a place where you get around to actually do it, you can use that as momentum for other things. And it was that one thing where I was like, oh, well, I can do this. Now I feel motivated to do other things. And maybe it's just living in the time of the pandemic where I have a lot of time on my hands. But it was like I kind of enjoyed going to Home Depot. I enjoyed looking around. Um, and in a way, I think sometimes when you go to Home Depot and you're like me, you get to play a character, you know, you get to pretend like you're a laborer or you, you get to pretend like you're someone who's handy when the truth is you feel like you're kind of a tourist, <laughs> like you really don't know what's going on. But, uh, I think the reason I'm really thinking about this is I was speaking with my girlfriend yesterday and I was telling her I had an exp you know, at the end of all of this, I had an experience that. You may laugh at, and some of you might relate to, but um, I was uh, uh, recounting it to my girlfriend as, as being something that is, you know, uh, prototypical me or uh, archetypal uh, illustration of who I am as a person. I'm not sure I'm using those words correctly, but that's what I mean. This is a, um, you know, if you if you need to know anything about me, this sort of sums me up, <clears throat> which is originally this all started. Because my landlord uh, said, you know, I don't think we actually have a key to your unit. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And they, they wanted to get copies of my, of my key made. And for whatever reason, our schedules were just not lining up. I work from home. A lot of the work that I do is done remotely, but it's also done over video. So there's times where I, absolutely, I, just, I just can't be disturbed uh, were the times that they were available. So I finally just said, Hey, I looked this up online. I'm pretty, I'm confident I can change the lock myself. Why don't I just take, take care of it for you. And when I drop off the rent check ne next month, I'll just give you copies of the keys. And in the meantime, I felt motivated to fix other things around the place that I knew needed to be fixed. The toilet seat had literally just broken. The fill valve needed to be replaced. The toilet tank was, um, filling rather slowly. And there was a, you know, the, the faucet was leaking. 
Um, and it was actually at once I tried to fix the faucet, actually, now there was this leak in the P trap. So that had to be replaced, um, as a consequence of that. But, uh, I did all this work. I was going to Home Depot and I didn't spend a lot of money all told everything that I bought, everything that I did, you know, the sum total was $108. And that's not a King's ransom. I mean, it's not free, but it's not a King's ransom. And so I really, (laughs) I genuinely debated with myself, you know, the only task that I talked to my landlord about was changing the lock. You know, that was like the only approved work. And when we talked about it, I said, oh, hey, I'll just change the lock. I'll fix it. And I'll just deduct the cost of the lock from my rent when I drop it off. And they were like, cool. But here I'd gone and done these other tasks. And I was genuinely apprehensive about being reimbursed for them because they hadn't, quote, approved the work. I had just sort of gone and done it myself. And I remember I was trying to text her and I was really saying, you know what? I think I'm just going to eat the cost of the other work. It's not that much money. I sort of did it myself. And there was a couple things. One, I was embarrassed to ask to be reimbursed for it. And I was also, again, back to this idea of the exhaust fan or the other things that are going on where I sort of see them as an extension of myself. I was actually embarrassed that the work had to be done in the first place. I mean, what, what's coming up for me right now as I'm talking about this is this idea of like, one thing that destroys me when it happens is if I get an unsightly pimple. You know, it makes me, I'm embarrassed about it because it makes me feel super vain. But the truth is, if I get an unsightly pimple, and I'm good for like one every year or every two years, for the duration that it's truly unsightly, I do not like leaving the house. It's hard for me to go out and be in public and be seen and sort of go about my life when I have a nasty pimple. And I know we all feel that way. But when I, th- this came up in therapy one time, and I was trying to be self-deprecating and say that I was kind of embarrassed to be at my session because I had this huge pimple on my face. Um, my therapist was actually kind of reflecting that I don't think most people are impacted by the way you're describing. You know, of course it's bad, but it's something we all live with. And that is sort of one example of a few things that happen in my life that I have strong feelings about that I think many other people recognize and relate to, but are also sort of socialized or used to just sort of getting through it. Um, But I was, you know, I had my phone in my hand the other day and I'm debating with myself, like, how am I going to word this to my landlord? Like, hey, I've done this other work. And I think most people looking at the situation objectively would be, dude, that's awesome. Your landlord is super happy is going to be super happy that you did the work. One, these things get need to be fixed every once in a while. I mean, what's the fantasy that the people in their other properties have never reached out to them about having things fixed? You know, things break. It, it says nothing about the person who lives there. Uh, it's not their idea of a good time having these things fixed, but they're not going to hold it against you necessarily. It's just it's it's part of it. You know, I've lived here for twelve years. I've never paid my rent late, and they've never heard from me. They've never heard a single complaint from me. I should be aware that for, for as far as landlords are concerned, I'm the ideal tenant. But I go about my life with such guilt or shame or I don't know what. It's just this incredibly disappointing thing that I keep encountering about myself, which is I believe that there is something on, on, on a deep level in ways that I'm not even aware of. In some ways, I'm very aware of it. In some ways, I, I'm disappointed to find it uh, ha- that it's permeated 
so many other aspects of my life that I'm not always consciously aware of. It's like there's something wrong with me and I'm scared of someone finding out. Like, sure, I've been an ideal tenant for the last 12 years, but this comes to light and they're going to be disappointed in me. They're going to find out, like, it'll, it'll validate some truth about myself that I'm scared for people to realize, as if the, the 12 years prior to this has been a performance. Because I think that's how I feel in life a lot of times. And so I'm sitting there with my phone, like, like uh, me and my girlfriend laugh about this, some, this uh, laugh about this sometimes when it comes to our work, which is, oh, what'd you do today? Well, I made, I did this email. It was supposed to take me five minutes, but it ended up taking me forty-five minutes or an hour because I really, I, you know, I, I really uh, slaved over the wording. You know, I really, uh, you know, because I was hyper conscious of how what I was going to say was going to be interpreted. I wanted to make sure the wording was just right. So. It's like I took that type of approach with this text, and I was saying, oh, hey, landlord, I went ahead and changed that thing. Oh, and by the way, and I'm trying to make it not sound like a big deal, I went, I went ahead and did some other small things around the place that needed to be fixed up. I, I changed the toilet seat and the fill valve, and I replaced the faucet fixture and the P-trap, and the total was just, you know, $108. If that's cool with you, I'll just deduct that, those costs from the rent and uh, drop off the keys you know, when I drop off the check next month. And I remember, almost like if you've ever texted somebody after a first date, you know, that kind of waffling over the verbiage, you know, making sure you're trying to come off kind of casual and not over eager and like kind of cool. And, you know, you're being very methodical about the words that you're choosing. That is the level of scrutiny I applied to this text. And what before I hit before I hit send on this text, there was a genuine moment of like, well, here goes nothing. Come what may, right? Uh, into the breach. Once more into the breach, folks. Here we go. And I sent it off. And it was like, well, it braced yourself, Kyle. It is what it is. And, of course, because this is how all these things work out for me, like 30 seconds later, I'd get a very curt reply, thanks, you are the best. And, I mean, it was a relief, obviously, so that's a good thing. But it was just, it was like, how could it have gone any other way? Of course, I was, I was all but wringing my hands over this interaction. And I send it off, and it, it is a non-issue as far as the other person is concerned. And I was just like, God damn it, if that isn't the story of my life. I go around in my life wearing a wool shirt, you know, just like torturing myself for something that is a non-issue to other people. And not just other people as in, hey man, who are you? Nobody gives a fuck. Like, of course, like, uh, you know, other people simply can't be bothered. But I'm talking about relevant parties to the situation I'm concerned about. They don't care. That's basically the story of my life. So, in some ways, I know there's this looming issue of needing the exhaust fan fixed, but in some ways, I feel, and this is going to sound dramatic, and I don't, uh, I don't mean to sound as heavy-handed as the words actually sound, but there's, there's a grain of truth to it, which is, in some ways, I feel kind of emotionally exhausted, you know? And, 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 and in a way, it's almost... You know, this is a lesson from my life also. It's like, how many victories do I need or how many signs do I need 
to now move on with my life or incorporate whatever experience I've just had into my psyche somehow and let it inform my future actions. Like now I should just feel vindicated. I'm not talking about like, I'm not going to like break down walls and stuff, but look, uh, my experience has demonstrated to me this is a non-issue. There's a part of me already that's gearing up for, oh, well, well, that was okay, but would she be okay with me, you know, fixing this 50 or $60 part in my, um, uh, in my place? Well, you know, the, the, smart, the smart part of my brain knows, absolutely. Are you kidding me? You know, assuming that you do competent work. I mean, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want someone with a propeller beanie doing the repairs around the place. But, uh, you know, you're, you've demonstrated yourself to be a competent person. These are small things. These are exactly the type of things that people who are not handy can do around the house. Right? We may, we may decide for ourselves that we're not capable of doing it. But the truth is, we are. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an analogy. I was trying to think if you can do X, you can certainly do this. I don't know what it's comparable to. Um, but it's like if you can do a puzzle, <laughs> you can change a lock, right? If you can, if you can, I mean, literally, I know I'm, I'm trying not to say that word as much, but it's like, you know, if you can turn a screwdriver, if you can keep pieces organized, and if you have, you know, the bare minimum of, of motor skills, you can change the lock on your door. You can change the P-trap under your sink. You can replace the fill valve on your toilet. You can certainly replace... I mean, if you can, uh, if you can use... If you can use a... Uh, this just goes to show you I don't drink coffee. But if you can make coffee at your house, you know, you can change the toilet seat on your toilet. Very simple. Everything just sort of snaps into place, right? Screw, unscrew this, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, you're not using power tools, is what I'm saying. Um... And actually, as I'm talking, we may need to take a break because I uh, drank a lot of water before this. I kind of have to use the restroom. We'll see if I can get through this. But um, yes, it was just another example of uh, a period where I'm having all this drama in my head about something that that the other person just doesn't care about. Um, So let's do this. We haven't done this in a long time. I will take a bathroom break and I'll be right back in just a moment. Ah, that's better. Um, That actually, that came at the right time. Because um, I kind of wanted to transition stories anyway. I want to tell you about something else that happened this week, which is <sighs> your boy got his firearm safety certificate. Um, it's I feel weird talking about it because, um, I don't know, I was going to say it has a lot of stigma around it. I don't even know if that's the right word. But people have strong feelings about firearms, and that makes perfect sense. But, you know, I mentioned on other episodes I've been considering buying a pistol. Uh, I took a pistol shooting class. I went to the range. I, I fired it off a couple times, and I shot really well. And I sort of thought that would sort of scratch my itch. But the truth is, I think about this a lot lately. I really, you know, I watch a lot of videos on guns. I'm looking at things that I'm interested in. I'm sort of, you know, I mean, one thing that really interests me, and my brother thinks this is silly because these are he thinks they're grandpa guns. But I'm really interested in like the single action revolvers, the old kind of cowboy guns. And not even like, normally those are chambered in forty five, which is a, a stronger caliber than what I'm interested in, which is twenty two, which people think is like a cap gun. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, that feels like the caliber for me. Part of that is, I think, you know, just from what I've learned and from what I've felt in my own hand, that's probably a good caliber for a beginner to start shooting on. Um, but that's my area of interest. It's something I really feel drawn to do. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to negotiate it with the girlfriend. I mean, she's obviously not over the moon about me owning a gun. And so, you know, it's sort of a back and forth 
between me and her. You know, at first it's, hey, how do you feel about me owning a gun? And it's like, uh, I don't like the idea at all. And I feel stupid saying it, but I guess I hadn't really considered the impact that would have on her given the shooting that happened at her apartment a couple months ago. Uh, or Man, it's probably like six months ago now, but if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that story. I'm not going to re- recount the whole thing here except to say that, you know, somebody was killed. Not killed, sorry. I take that back. Um, somebody tried Somebody tried to kill someone right outside of her apartment in the building, in the hallway. Uh, some guy was shot. Uh, I, I think I think the story is he was chased up the steps to her the floor of her apartment and he was shot like outside her door. He lived. Um, he was actually running upstairs to the superintendent's apartment for safety and was shot in the hallway. So, I mean, geez, when you put it that way, it sounds really insensitive. Um, but uh, it's something I really want to do, you know. So I don't know if it's going to be a matter of finding a place outside of my house to store it. Um, maybe it's not keeping ammunition at home, um, which is probably not the safest thing to say, but, um, but, you know, especially since my primary interest is taking it to the, to the range and just shooting at targets, maybe it's a, you know, not having ammunition at home and just, uh, buying ammunition when I'm on the range, but, uh, or, you know, look, it may boil down to not owning a gun at all. Uh, but if you do want to buy a firearm in the state of California, you have to get what's called a firearm safety certificate. And what that means is, like a driver's test, you basically, before you can get your license, I mean, I've, I've never taken the actual driving test. Like in the movies, you always see someone gets in the car with you and, you know, they, they have a clipboard and they, you know, tick off that you check your rear view mirrors and they basically drive around with you and, and give you a test. Um, I mean, whatever that requirement is, was fulfilled and do I really want to go into this story? <laughs> but was fulfilled by a driving class that I took. Uh, the only reason that that's interesting is because the person who facilitated my driving, uh, I mean, man, my brain's like firing off in a thousand directions, but, you know, when you're an adult, there's things you look back on that happened in your childhood that you look back on and think are fucking crazy. And you realize that as a kid, you're kind of floating in a world that oftentimes was a lot more dangerous and spooky than you even realized. You know, and if you were actually victimized, I mean, of course, right? I mean, you had to grow up fast and that's that, 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 you know, that shattered innocence that we talk about sometimes. But, you know, you look back on certain experiences and you're like, oh, I think that person was a predator. But, you know, I look back on the way my driving instructor talked to me and it was, uh, you know, maybe grooming is a little heavy handed, but it was uh, inappropriate to say the least. Uh, our conversations became increasingly like more sexual and probing. And he said some really inappropriate stuff. Um, uh, as I'm saying it, we may have talked about it, but the point is really the only thing this is driving at is that I never took a driving test proper. But when you want to buy a firearm in the state of California, you have to go and take a, a firearm safety certificate test, which is 30 questions. And they're incredibly easy. In fact, I would challenge, you know, not that you have to buy a gun, uh, but, uh, you know, they recommend that you read this manual that you can download online. It's about 50 pages, and you can read through it, and that's what the test is going to be on. And I read through the thing three times, thinking, the, you know, the questions on the test were going to be pretty simple. But if you've ever taken, if you've ever taken any, like, sexual harassment um, type training or any kind of modules on, you know, through your work that you have to go online, and it's basically fulfilling some kind of requirement, you know, some bureaucratic requirement, some, 
certification or whatever, the questions are never difficult. In fact, I think most people could take the firearm safety certificate test having never read any of the materials and still passed it. You need to get a 70% to pass. There's 30 questions, so I think it's like, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but I think you can get 23 right. I think you can miss seven. Is that right? Um, but they're the most insanely easy questions in the world. So I did pass, but something about, I had to go to this, I had to go to a gun store. Uh, this one was located in Albany. I I don't really want to say the name of it, but you know, it kind of caters to uh, a market who's interested in the types of firearms that I am, which is like, you know, the single action Colts and maybe some rifles, but just like old, you know, kind of, you know, not your, uh, so-called assault rifles and that sort of stuff. Uh, different demographic, uh, different, different demographic of people shop there. Um, but it was the weirdest thing in the world. There's like no, but you had to have an appointment to get there, which is part of the COVID requirements. They're only seeing people by appointment. There were three people on staff and nobody else in the store. And you pay $25 to take this test, 30 questions, super easy. And it reminds me, I think I mentioned this when I took my pistol shooting class, which is there's a something fundamentally adversarial about people who are interested in guns in the state of California, which is they're sort of anti-establishmentarian in that, you know, they just, they exist on this plane. There's just something adversarial about gun owners in the state of California. California is very restrictive in terms of its gun laws. A lot of guns that you can buy elsewhere in the country, you simply can't buy here because California has requirements that manufacturers just have no interest in trying to meet because they're so, um, What's the word? Yeah, it just, uh, you know, it would, it would mean retooling their machines, which is just not cost-effective for them. Uh, moreover, a lot of the things that they want firearm manufacturers to do could be easily circumvented by, by criminals who, who want to get around them. So, um, you know, I'm all about safety and stuff. I'm, I'm, at least from what I've read, I'm not even convinced that a lot of the laws I've read make a lot of sense. But the point is, is that, you know, there's just something crotchety about the people who work there. It's like they're almost resentful that they're even in this field. You know, and it's like if, if 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 you're interested in firearms to the extent that it is it is your business, like this is your industry. If it means if living in the state of California means that you basically have your hands tied behind your backs, you would think that you'd locate somewhere else. Um, but it is what it is, and they're you know they're they're sort of uh, saying what's the word I'm looking for? They're saying. You know, they're kind of laughing at the fact that I have to pay $25 to take this test. And when they're grading it, he says, okay, you passed. Uh, and he says, but the, we can't even tell you which ones you missed because heaven forbid you learn something. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, and so they give you your firearm safety certificate and they're, you get two copies of it. And they're like, now if you lose one of these, the county is going to demand five more dollars of your ho- or five more of your hard-earned dollars to replace it. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't know. It seems to make sense for me, but uh, for them, they sort of frame it as, as if this is, you know, one more way in which the man is castrating you or is out to get you. And I was like, all right. Um, the crazy thing is, I mean, we're living in a time right now that's like one of the biggest gun buy-offs in, in history. I mean, nothing is in stock. I mean, thankfully for me, like I think a lot of people are looking for like defensive firearms, shotguns, you know, nine millimeter pistols and stuff like that. I'm actually pretty lucky if I'm in the market now that I'm looking for something that's pretty low caliber and not not high demand right now. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, talking about it's weird. I, I, I don't know. 
it's it's just weird. I, I'm surprised that I'm interested in it myself, and I know that you know people have a strong reaction to it. So, um, I think the real thing that uh, has been sitting on my mind this week is I was home the other night. Um, I happened to subscribe to Hulu, but I think I was sort of combing through Facebook, and I see this post by this person I'm connected to. His name is DJ Grothy. And he was the former host of a podcast I listened to growing up called Point of Inquiry. And for me, it was a very formative podcast for me because it was all about uh, skepticism and, uh, you know, kind of, well, atheism. It was about skepticism and atheism. And for me, you know, that was a really formative thing from my teenage years. And I don't really know if I saw how the two were related until later in life, but... Um, magicians are strongly associated with skepticism. Uh, Harry Houdini in particular was sort of known as a debunker. Uh, you know, he would debunk people who had mm, so-called supernatural powers, you know, mystics and, uh, clairvoyance and speakers of the dead, uh, speakers of the dead, if that's the right word. Uh, but he would, uh, debunk a lot of their techniques and, and, and try to show people how that they were just illusions or tricks, right? Um, that was a big part of his mission. That was a big part of what he did. Um, this person, DJ Grothy, who hosts this podcast, he and I got connected because when I was living in Tucson, he came to, to speak. And with a type of gumption that I don't know that I have anymore, but I seem to have it when I was younger, I just reached out to him and said, hey, uh, I live in the area. I would like to film your talk and edit it for you. Um, and he was like, hell yeah. And so I did that. And for some reason, we just always kind of stay connected. And on Facebook, we'd stay connected. I've sent him videos of mine over the years, which he's, you know, been kind enough to, to look at and give me feedback on. Um, years ago, I made this video about Harry Houdini, which I sent him and he was, uh, you know, had nice things to say about it. But anyway, uh, he himself was an amateur magician when he was younger. And he posted this link to a show, which you may have heard of. It's called In and of Itself by a magician named Derek Delgadio. This has been a show, it ran in New York City, um, I think when you, basically there was a filmed version of it that was released, but for a long time, this was a show that Derek Delgadio did that ran in New York City in a very small theater, I think for about 150 people a night would see it. And ever since I first heard about this show, it's been on my radar, I've been really interested in it, especially because even though it was making quite a stir and it had a really strong reputation, one of the very cool things about it is that there were no clips of it. There were some promotional photos that were taken, um, but otherwise they were very draconian in people not filming it. Um, I think they may even have taken people's phones away from them for the show because, you know, what happens inside was so, you know, the key component was being there for the show and they didn't want to let any information about the show out. So part of it, it just has a mystique. Right? There's so few people who are actually in the room that it's kind of a treat for them. But it also builds mystique when people don't know what's going on inside the room. Well, and actually, my girlfriend saw it live about a year and a half ago when she was in New York City. She saw it with her family. And I was, because I had heard about it, I'd wanted to see it for a long time. And I can't remember what kept me away or why, why I wasn't in New York City at the time. But I remember prying her for information. Well, what happened? What, what, you know, what was the show? What was, and I, I had heard tell of this sort of impactful illusion he does at the, at the very end. And I was trying to get 
details about, well, did it happen this way? And what was this? And, and for some reason, her description of it was just not satisfying for me. It wasn't painting a very clear picture for me. Um, but I'm on Facebook the other night, and I see DJ Grothy share the status that a filmed version of the show is now available on Hulu. And I don't always do this, but the minute I saw it, and it was probably like 11 o'clock at night, I immediately click over to it, start watching it, and the first thing you see on this footage is uh, a sign that says, you know, turn off your cell phones and, and, and you know, give this, give, this, give this performance your full focus or something like that. So I turn off the lights and I watch the show from beginning to end. Now, this is one of those instances, like Tenet, but I even, you know, fuck Tenet compared to this. If you have not seen, in and of itself, by Derek Delgadio on Hulu, stop listening to the podcast right now. Do yourself a favor, click over to it, bookmark it, put it on your list of things to do, uh, and don't come back to this podcast uh, until you watch it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to give anything away about it, but there's something about this show that I, I just, I feel like I have to speak to, but... Suffice it to say, if, you know, you, you can't say, the problem is you can't say too much about the show without giving away some details, but suffice it to say, it's a one-man show that played in New York City, Derek Delgadio, uh, and the performance is, it's a one-man show, it's a very poignant mix of magic, mentalism, and personal narrative, and it is probably the most poignant and in some ways, profound thing, like, like uh, I don't, I don't want to say movie-going experience, because it's not a movie necessarily, but it, it's one of the most moving things I've ever seen. And like other things in my life that I've really enjoyed, it was really hard for me to watch. It was, you know, sometimes I use the phrase, I'll call something devastatingly great. And I would say, probably more than anything else I've ever seen, this really hurt me to watch. Um... Even as I, I mean, as I talk about it, they feel kind of vulnerable saying it, but, you know, as I was watching the show, it was one of those moments where I just wanted to give up creatively. I was watching this and saying, this show is essentially everything I've ever wanted to create in my life, and it's already been done. So why even bother? And I know that's, I don't know, maybe we hear people say that sometimes, so we just kind of dismiss it, but since watching it, I've been kind of depressed. <laughs> um, in other episodes, I've talked about this period of my life where I, w I sort of stumbled on the I Ching and I had this very sort of spiritual, um, you know, time in my life that was both very scary, but also felt very magical. And I've alluded to this idea that I had this wave of inspiration to create this thing that I would say even today has been, you know, it's occupied all of my thinking creatively. Even though I've done other things, I've released music, this idea has been, I've just been kind of obsessed with it. And, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but just to sort of, and again, I feel stupid talking about it with not, not without going into too much detail about it, but, you know, we've talked about the game developer Jonathan Blow at other times on this podcast. And when he talks about what is a good idea, you know, or what should you give your, t your creative energy and time to, what is your next big project going to be? It should be the type of thing that when you think about it, it almost brings you to tears. It's that important to you. 
And maybe it sounds heavy handed if you've never had anything like that, but that's how I feel about this project. I mean, when I really think about it, when I think about what I want it to be, um, what it would mean to me, I get kind of emotional when I think about it. And while I can't say that what I have in mind is exactly what Derek Delgadio did with in and of itself, I can say that the, the amount of points of contact that what I was envisioning has with the final product of what he created was spooky. And I've just been fucking depressed since then because, you know, I've talked about it other times, you know, we go about our lives sometimes and sometimes we have the experience that there's some great work being carried out in the cosmos. And sometimes you may feel called or inspired to do something. But, you know, and I'm thinking about Hamlet here for some reason, but if you don't do it, if you wait, if you don't, you know, follow through with it, you know, the work has to be carried out somehow. And I've said for the last five or six years, I, I, I you know, whether it's true or not, whether I'm delusional, I, it's not for me to say, but my, my very personal experience is that I have seen this idea broken into a hundred different pieces and carried out in other people's works. And every time I see some facet of this project in somebody else's work, it's just, it's been devastating. And I have all these little signs that I missed it, that I was supposed to do this thing. And yet here it is being carried out by other people. Um, you know, for some reason, I think on the Adam Carolla podcast, sometimes some, there was some person on there, some producer who wanted to adapt some novel or there was some news story that they wanted to turn into a film and they were telling, oh, I'm, I was developing this. Well, lo and behold, another production company already went, you know, sort of got the rights to it and made the film. And I think Adam Carolla reached out to him and said, hey, man, sorry you missed that thing. And his response was, well, it was my fault for waiting. And I'm going to make damn sure that that never happens again. And I've just had that playing over and over in my mind a thousand times. There's a thousand things I see where, you know, the message I'm receiving from the cosmos or that I think I'm receiving from the cosmos is do it, do it, do it, or it's being done by other people. And there have been a hundred instances of that where I've known it, I've seen it happen. It's like I see the window of opportunity closing. I've seen it close a thousand times and yet I, I haven't done this thing. And seeing in and of itself by Derek Delgadio for me was like the last nail in the coffin. You know, again, in some ways it's very different from what I not only have in mind, but what I'm even capable of doing. But I've never seen anything in my life that I have wanted to have done more. You know, I know what it's like to hear a, a song that I love. You know, I listen to things obsessively. If I find a song I like, I will listen to it at ad nauseum. I will have it on a loop and I will listen to that song 1500 times. You know, one of the big, one of the, the best examples of that for me is the al the debut album by the 1975. I have listened to that record thousands of times. Literally, I've seen the iTunes play count on those songs. And that's just in iTunes. I've also listened to the thing on Spotify thousands of times. I've listened to those songs, my favorite songs on that album thousands of times. Um, and I know what it's like to wish I had created something, but this, this is something else entirely. You know, there's other things that I've seen that have, oh, I wish I would have created that because I like that a lot. I really enjoy it. 
or I want to create something like that. I hope, I hope in some way I'll create something like that that somebody else can enjoy. I've never seen anything else in my life that I feel like I should have been him. You know, there's this musical Blood Brothers that I saw just by chance years ago when I was like 13. And I've gone back and gone, it actually kind of sucks. Like It's not a great musical. And the premise of the story uh, is uh, twins who were born, and they're separated at birth, and one of them is raised by their poor mother, and the other one's sold to a rich family. And, uh, you know, one of the opening, I don't know, points of the musical is that if these two ever find out uh, that they were born of the same mother or that they're brothers, they will die the exact same day. Lo and behold, the play plays out, and in the climactic scene, they realize they're brothers, and the other brother, you know, right before he, he pulls a pistol on his brother and shoots him, he says, I should have been him. I should have been him! And then he, like, fires his gun, and they both die. Uh, he kills his brother, and then I think the police kill him. But I'm watching Derek Delgadio's thing, and it's like, not just that I should have been him, but I felt like I failed myself. Because there's two things that happen when you watch in and of itself. Not only is it, (laughs) in and of itself, beautiful and poignant and masterful, you really feel there's this some psychological impact that this is the sum of this person's life work. You know, the beauty of magic is that there's so much that happens behind the scenes that looks effortless, like figure skating or something. They make it look so easy. There's so much happening that you just can't even pick up on that this person can only do because of the, you know, fuck 10,000 hours. People say you have to do something 10,000 hours or something before you're an expert. You have to do way more than that to do anything approaching what Derek Delgadio does with a deck of cards in, in this show. And even though you've seen other people do it, I mean, I've seen cardistry. Uh, in some ways, the interesting part of it in and of itself is there's actually a similar, you know, a predecessor to this show was called Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants, which was, I believe, I almost want to say David Mamet filmed it, but it was done in a small theater. It was uh, Ricky Jay, who's a very famous cardist, uh, magician, if you want to call him that, but mostly cardistry. Uh, he did this show, narrative story show in... You know, that ran and it was filmed by David Mamet and it was, you know, a parlor type show. And so this is sort of an extension of that. It's way, I mean, it's way more than what Ricky Jay did. Um, But this is somebody's life work, you know, and it's not just that it's not like a magic show like David Copperfield. Like I said, it's a a mix of magic and illusion and personal narrative. And, you know, the only reason Derek Delgadio can do this is because he has a skill set that he's given his whole life to. And when Derek Delgadio was first started learning cardistry, there's no way in hell he thought that he wanted to do a show like in and of itself. It's his entire life, every experience that he's had that he could never have predicted would have impacted him the way he did, uh, the way it did. Um, you know, he just never could have foreseen that he would create a show like this. Um, but you see it and there's something about this show that is so timely and so now and so, you know, it's never been done before there. I just know in my heart, I don't need to speak to Derek Delgadio to know this. 
I know in my heart that Derek Delgadio had a vision for this show. And it it felt fucking nuts. But he had the courage to do it. And the reason it's as impactful as it is is because he had the courage to say yes to everything that came into his mind. Maybe when it happened, he didn't know what it would look like. He didn't know how it would all come together. And I know it sounds crazy to hear it because, you, you know, if you haven't seen it, you don't know what I'm talking about. But it's, it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. It's great magic, it's great entertainment, but it's more than that. It's one of the highest, <laughs> it's one of the greatest achievements in art that I've ever seen. Because it's so personal, because it's so, because it incorporates the audience in such a way that they can't help but being impacted by it. You know, and the fact that it was small, the fact that it was intimate is brilliant. And you can just feel by watching it, you know, it's this live tape performance and they do a great job of intercutting between performances so that it's not filmed in such a way that you, you know, there's no illusion that you're sitting and watching a performance from beginning to end. Part of the impact is saying, you know, oh, he did this every night, you know, and so they intercut between different shows to demonstrate it's not the same show every night. You know, he's doing these illusions with a different audience every night. Um, You can just tell every single person who's in that room knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're seeing something special. And if you were in the audience, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I, I, I told my girlfriend about seeing the film performance, and I don't have the sense that, even though she was in the room, I don't have the sense that it impacted her that much. I think most people, or maybe I should just say many people, who saw that show, I'm not saying they called in the work the next day and quit their jobs, or the next day put, put pen to paper and started writing the great American novel they always had in themselves, but... You know, for some people, you know, their lives are going to be changed by watching the show. You know, in other episodes, I've talked about this idea of being in dereliction of duty, that our role as artists is to have the courage to create the things that we dream about. You know, to show people what their lives could be if they have the courage to dedicate their lives to something that to everybody else seems crazy, like shuffling cards. You know, Harry Houdini could pick any lock. He dedicated his life to a task that most people would have thought was a complete waste of time. But when you take it to the level that Harry Houdini did and then show it to people, it's not that picking locks in and of itself is something that we celebrate or that's culturally relevant but the performance of it and then cloaking it in these archetypes or in some kind of story that's powerful and impactful and meaningful to people. That is magic. That's religion. You know, that's what I mean by artists being the shamans or the, you know, the spiritual leaders. Like I really believe that that's where the root of the artists come from. And I, I think, you know, the high, the, the high art that we have today is, is still rooted in that. I think, um, You know, the experience for somebody like myself, when I watch in and of itself, it's like, this was made for me. 
And I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> I, I think there's a, but I, I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. But the impact of, in and of itself, is not just that it's good and it's entertaining and it's powerful and it's moving. You know, for some people who watch it, It's a living example of what's possible if you just say yes to the possibilities. And not just, and it's not, I'm not talking about some kind of fairy tale thing where in one moment I make a decision. It's every single day. Derek Delgadio has dedicated his life to this craft and this creative project to create something that on the face of it sounds insane. And even if he did nothing else for the rest of his life, he has this performance, the show that was created, and this sounds like a crazy thing for an atheist slash skeptic to say, but I genuinely believe that a great, you know, spiritual slash cosmic work is being carried out in this show. And I'm not even saying that we can point to the impact of the show, but, you know, I go back to this Tupac quote, which is, you know, he says, I may not change the world, but I will impact the mind that will change the world. I have no doubt that this show in and of itself is one link in a cosmic chain of works that need to be created for not just our culture, our Western culture, but for humanity. And even if only one person saw this show, it needed to happen. And this is the part where I feel like I start to sound like a megalomaniacal narcissist, but, you know, there's a part of me sometimes in my private moments, (laughs) I would say frequently in my private moments, where I feel, right or wrong, that I was supposed to do something with my life. And and I'm not, uh, look, I realize how crazy this sounds, but... You know, some people look at their life and they think, you know, uh, if I'm a good father, if I'm a good husband, I will have sort of fulfilled my purpose. I actually thought about this, I mean, I think about this all the time, but especially now that there's a pandemic, when I think about it, when I'm on my deathbed, what will I regret not having done? Now, there's two two points to this. Uh, As part of my work, I facilitate a class that's called exploring our attitudes about death and suicide. And because I work on a crisis line, a lot of that conversation focuses around being comfortable talking about death and dying because we speak with people who are seriously considering suicide. So it's important that we're comfortable with these topics because if we have uncomfortable if we're uncomfortable having these conversations, that can really signal to the other person that, you know, them being fully honest with us might actually make us uncomfortable and um they may not be Full, they, may not, they may not fully disclose how they're actually feeling. One thing that comes up in this class, though, as we watch this one video of... Uh, actually, you should look it up. It's this dude, B.J. Miller. He's the former, maybe director, co-director, maybe even founder of this... It's called the Zen Hospice Project that used to be in San Francisco. I think they've uh, either you know, been dismantled or have changed drastically. But he talks about this concept that at the end of life, people's priorities change. Um... All of a sudden, the person who's been running marathons and eating organic food, they want to start smoking. (laughs) Or the highlight of their life now is having a a chocolate chip cookie. 
you know, on our deathbed, our priorities change. The things that we thought were monumentally important actually have no meaning to us at all. And uh, sometimes the things we've been running away from for most of our life actually take on the greatest importance. Um, so I guess I'm trying to say, I'm trying to hold two things. I'm trying to say, when I think about my life and I think about my death and I think, you know, if I was diagnosed with COVID tomorrow, what would I regret? <sighs> you know, I don't think it's going to be that I haven't read Brothers Karamazov yet. And I don't think it's going to be I haven't graduated with my undergraduate degree yet, which your boy still hasn't. And the hard one for me to say, I think, is it's not going to be that I was a father or whatever or had a family. Today, the thing that kills me is that I didn't do this creative project. And again, it's not that what I would have created was in and of itself. Although the parallels are fucking spooky. <laughs> I mean, incredibly spooky. It's, and in fact, as I'm thinking about it now, it's not just that I didn't follow this one creative project. I look at it in and of itself, and like I said, this is someone that someone has dedicated their life to. There's almost a part of me where I feel like there's a big hole in my skill sets where I could, even if I had tried, I would have failed. You know, when you look at in and of itself and you see Derek Delgadio's cardistry, you think, what have I ever done with whatever, what have I ever given myself to so fully that I have a skill set that would even be as captivating as that? Nothing. Your boy, I'm, I barely play guitar. I'm, I am, I am honestly just good enough a guitar to accompany myself and only barely. I can kind of sing. I'm an okay lyricist, but what if I what if I given my life to that I could that demands that kind of respect that could that could be that captivating on an on an entertainment level? I mean, like when you see in and of itself, you're seeing a, a level of mastery on par with Harry Houdini, and the crazy part is, is it's not just his magic. There's a moment about the three-quarter mark where I find his delivery a little over-earnest and mm, kind of, uh, he's trying to sound too natural, but that's because I'm a perfectionist. The point, though, is his performance in this film, it's one of the best acting performances I've ever seen. And I'll tell you why. I mean, ultimately, I have myself to blame that I haven't carried out this creative project. And the truth is, I probably never will, if I'm being honest. But there's two things that came up to me, and I won't name them. But when I look back on that time, I was <laughs> before I even started, I was just sort of walking around, assuming I was going to talk about this at some length. And I thought, what, what experiences did I have that, would, that discouraged me, other than myself? And that's the primary one. But I remember having two moments when I was first sort of marinating on this idea, and I really felt like I was on the cusp of action. I had sheets of paper that I had scribbled over. I had, you know, probably about 50 pages that were just covered front and back with these sketches of these ideas, and I was linking things together and all sorts of stuff. And I remember I had two conversations that were devastating to me. I called up a friend of mine. He was an engineer. He was doing some of my mixing at the time. I haven't spoken to this person in a long time. I remember there was a restaurant up the street from his recording studio, and I remember asking him out to lunch, and I wanted to tell him about this project. 
And I remember we sat down and he said, Hey man, what's going on? It sounds like there was something you really wanted to uh, tell me about. And, um, I'm trying to tell the story without giving away too much detail, but I'll, you know, I basically said, I have this idea for a show that I want to do. And it's a mix of acting and music and storytelling and yada, yada, yada. And I sort of gave him the broad strokes of what it was. And he went, oh, that sounds awful. I got to be honest with you, man. Nobody wants to see more of you doing that stuff. And I remember it was like a knife in my gut. And I remember another time I had this person coming over my place, a good friend of mine, someone I'm still friends with. And I remember he came over my place. We were doing some, I was doing some recording for him or whatever. And I remember he came over and I was, I had just been thinking about this and maybe I had some of the materials lying out or I don't know if he asked what it was. I, I can't imagine why I would have brought this up unsolicited, but I told him, Oh, I have this idea. It's going to be a, a show. It's going to be X, Y, or Z. And he, and he just went, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Let's not be over ambitious, buddy. And I remember that was like fully deflating for me. And look, I blame myself, <laughs> but I think about that sometimes, you know, I think about what, what have I, you know, have I ever said anything to anybody that was that, you know, without realizing it, obviously, now, I mean, that's, that's the upsetting part. These people had no idea how crushing this was for me, but what if I had just had somebody in my life who said, yes, absolutely, dude, I can't wait to see that. I mean, because when you look at in and of itself, it's Derek Delgadio's show, but you know, look, it's directed by Frank Oz. There were great minds and great people who were involved in the creation of this. And I guarantee you, if we saw the first draft of the show, it wasn't nearly as good as what it, what it became, but it took, it takes a team of people. You know, it takes someone blowing wind in your sails to push forward with these things, especially when they feel scary. And so I don't know what this is driving at as much as to say, I blame myself for not believing. I wish I believed in myself enough. I wish I had enough creative confidence to just do the things that I want to do sometimes. That goes for creative and personal. Um, I'm always looking for somebody else to tell me it's okay. And it, dude, I get fucked up about it. You know, because I, I depend in my life. I mean, look, now we're coming full circle, folks. But when I think about the handyman work, that's, it should have been a no-brainer. Dude, of course, that's awesome. You're doing, you're doing work around your place. You're fixing it up. You're fixing stuff. You know, you're paying for it. Sure, you can deduct the cost. But now, now your landlord doesn't have to pay a handyman to do it. You're saving the money. Isn't that awesome? I wish I believed in myself as much as I should. I mean, for someone who goes around and spends most of their life thinking about what they should do, I wish the, sh I wish I look to everybody else in life to tell me what the should is. You know, why don't I know what I should be doing? And look, maybe if I had set out on the path of creating whatever I wanted to create, maybe it would have been a fucking failure, but I still think it would have been a step in the right direction toward what I should and I'm using the personal should there, should be doing. And tragically, I feel like at this point in my life, it's what I should have done. So, you know, I've been living with a fair amount of regret the last couple of days. But, the, but 
honestly, in and of itself is one of the best things I've ever seen. And if you happen to have Hulu, you should watch it. And as I'm looking at the time, it's time to finish here. Um, but yeah, what can I say except I'll continue to think about it. And um, no doubt, uh, either it, one of two things will happen. Either this will also be the topic of conversation for the next episode, or like a lot of things, I'll sort of move on to something else and forget that this conversation ever happened. But uh, until then, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Take a minute, rate and review the show, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why other people will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, until next week, thank you for listening. Thanks for your time. And ciao for now. <laughs>